The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher. It's Thursday, March 31st, which means it's jammy day at my kid's school. And if you're in jammies while you're listening to today's show, more power to you. Um, Today is also the final decision release day for most of the colleges and universities around the country. Uh, So I hope you seniors are seeing some clarity right about now about where you might be going to school next fall. Um, It's also tax season. I know the hits just keep on coming. Uh, And later in today's show, we'll talk about students and taxes uh, with my colleague, Lori Peltier. But first, we want to return to a discussion we had just two weeks ago, last time I hosted, about the Turning the Tide report from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, To do that, I'd like to welcome Elise Krantz and Beth Heaton back to the show. Hi, Ian. Hey, Elise. Hi, Ian. Happy to be back. Hi, Beth. So for those of you who missed our first conversation, I strongly recommend you go back into the archives to listen to our segment two weeks ago on the 17th. Uh, We talked about the report in broad terms, outlining some of the key takeaways and even waxing philosophical, that might have been my fault, on the efficacy of college admissions and shaping social values. Today, we want to dig a little more deeply into certain aspects of the report and especially discuss what the release of it might mean for students applying to college in the coming years. Elise, last week, you highlighted the three central recommendations Uh, One of the ones we didn't discuss was the recommendation that colleges should work at, quote, assessing students' ethical engagement and contributions to others in ways that reflect varying types of family and community contributions across race, culture, and class. So I'd like to start with you. Are there, you know, as somebody who has read college applications, uh, are there currently any aspects of the college application, just generally speaking, that encourage students to engage with difference? in the way that is recommended by this report? In the application itself? Yeah, or in what parts of the application might this show up? Yeah, I mean, unless a college is asking a specific question in one of their essays about it, um, it's not as though students have to demonstrate examples of how they've engaged with their community, with their diversity um, around them. Um, But it is notable, I, I know that in the activity section of the common application at least, they do say in the instructions that students should feel free to include family responsibilities. Um, It used to be, I think, a few years ago there wasn't an easy way to list that, but now for a student, let's say, who has a lot of responsibilities at home, one of the drop-down options in that activities form is for family responsibilities. So if, if a student is going right from school to home and they don't have a lot of clubs 
to show off on their resume, that's okay if, if they're spending a lot of time helping uh, with younger children, you know, the younger siblings in the house, or with grandparents, sometimes students have that. So I, I suppose there are some places, um, but it's not, it'll be interesting to see if, if more colleges adopt specific questions targeting diversity, um, if that's something that is of interest to them. Right, and, and that's one of the big, I think, questions about this report more generally is, is this going to be of interest to colleges? Is this something that they actually are going to ask for? Because the report obviously is sort of an independent commitment, even though it's been signed by a lot of admissions officers. Um, Beth and, and Elisa, we ask you both, can you think of some examples of, of students that you've worked with or applications that you read where you noticed some sort of a profound commitment to engagement with their community across these different types of, of groups, whether it's culture or class or race. Hmm. So you're, you mean different colleges that, that I've seen maybe ask for this or different students who have maybe worked that into the messaging that they're doing? I think, st- yeah, students that have demonstrated it through their application. I think, you know, for me, this is one of the hardest things to get my head around how a student would show this on the application. Um, and so I don't know if, if either of you have, have sort of examples of students who have done this particularly well. Um, the family example that Elise just gave might be a good one, but you know, maybe there's, there's something else uh, that you can think of. You know, I, I, I have, certainly have... Oops, sorry. No, go ahead, Beth. If, if you have an example, go for it. Well, I mean, I, have, I, I can think of some students who I've worked with who were really engaged in their community in, um, in a couple of different ways. Um, who then wrote about that in their uh, essays. And I suppose in some, on some level, that did show some real engagement with diversity. So one student, actually the two students I'm thinking of both got engaged with elementary school students in their communities. One was focused on helping to get those students more active because he lived in an area with high rates of obesity. And so, you know, he went out and he was a runner and so created some programming to get students kind of starting to run a little bit earlier. And he started these programs for younger students and got some of his fellow runners involved and they spread it out across the community. And, and in, that, in that way, I think it was seeing a real issue and involving himself a significant amount of himself and his time in kind of bringing that, trying to solve that issue. And similarly, the... Um, the other person I'm thinking about was very focused on the environment and wanted to get younger people involved in saving the environment because she felt like that was the sweet spot. Adults were already too set in their ways, but young kids are really eager to learn and embrace these kinds of things. And in both cases, they were going to neighboring communities that were very different from the ones that they lived in. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of Spanish-speaking students, and so... Really, it, it was a way in which they were engaging. Um, but I also wonder if it wasn't another example of, and they were fabulous kids and they did amazing things, but, you know, turning the tide seems to be focused on engaging with diversity in a way so that everyone's working together. And in these situations, I think those students were going in, um, in with a goal of solving a problem. I don't know that they had... You know, it's tricky to me to see if it totally fits what uh, Turning the Tide claims they're looking, that they want students to be doing. Yeah, Elise, Elise, you had a a couple of examples you wanted to share as well. 
Yeah, um, I worked with a student this year, a really lovely uh, girl from New Jersey, and her essay talked about a change that she had in terms of her own attitude and beliefs and how because of her upbringing she felt a particular way about students who were homosexual and it was this evolution of her own beliefs and values because of a strong friendship that she had and a student who came out to her and it was a really beautiful essay and I think thinking about diversity in all of its forms, thinking about sexual diversity as, as one example. Um, it's certainly a, a, a very prevalent topic, I think, for a lot of young people today. And it was just a great example of her reaching out and going beyond her own initial um, prejudices in a way to realize, wow, you know, this is who my best friend is and I want to welcome her for who she is. And it showed great tolerance and respect for another group of people that wasn't who she, you know, wasn't part of her family, but it was, it was, she was willing to accept it and, and be open-minded about it. So I think that was a, she did, I think, a nice job of reflecting on reaching out to others from different backgrounds. And I, it was a great essay. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point. I think the, the idea of diversity is something that colleges awfully, um, um, often talk about, uh, just in terms of the diversity of, on their particular campus. We also see it in applications. Uh, and people talk often about race, and look, these are hard conversations. They're hard conversations within the national discussion. They're hard conversations within um, college contexts, um, and they're hard conversations to engage in as a high school student. Um, and so I think that aspect of, of reflection is really important, but it also underscores the fact that you're not not going to spend five hours doing a service project and suddenly have a profound idea about class and race and culture. And it's probably not something you want to share necessarily in a college admissions essay as well. I, you know, we sort of, there's the college admissions essay where students jet across the globe to do meaningful service. Um, but that rarely sort of catches the eye of admissions officers. Um, are there sort of horror stories out there or just sort of cautionary tales for students in terms of how they think about or engage with diversity or how they relay that sort of experience to an admission officer so that it sounds mature as opposed to sounding, you know, immature or, or um, sort of underdeveloped? I mean, my horror story is always, and it is my go-to example of just the community service essay that a lot of students write. A, they write about it because they think it's what colleges want to hear about, and that is one of my fears with turning the tide, that it will encourage more of these, not less of them. Um, and it's about, you know, just volunteering at the soup kitchen or going to Costa Rica and building houses. And as a result of that experience, you know, A, maybe not realizing how much you had uh, right. until you saw people who didn't have what you have, and then... Or B, not imagining that someone who didn't have what you had could actually be happy, like amazingly so, or some combination of that. And I can't tell you how many times I've read that essay, but I can tell you that I've never read a good version of that essay. Um, if those are the sort of simplistic uh, conclusions that students draw, and quite honestly, you know, I think that's a common thing to draw from that when you're a teenager. So how do you get past that? Um, right. You know, right. that's my challenge. Yeah, it's a, I, that's a real difficulty um, to, to be able to say something from that experience as a 17-year-old that doesn't sound, 
sort of superficial, but if it's your first revelation, that's that's a way of, of thinking about it. Elise, did you have something you wanted to add about this type of an essay or what might make for an effective way to relay a, a story of a profound change? I have such a hard time with those essays because initially I would have those same issues that Beth has and, and think this is not the direction you want to go in whenever I would first read those essays. That would be my gut reaction. But right. the more I think about it, and, and it's been a while that I've been wondering if this particular essay topic, maybe it's not really our place to say you shouldn't write about that experience. If it was, I, you, know, you know, don't choose it because you think colleges want to read about it. But if you really had a profound, eye-opening experience while well, you were visiting your family in India and you've never seen that kind of poverty before and it did make you appreciate the life you have, I mean, on some level, who are we to say that's wrong to write about? I think... I, I don't have an example in my mind of a great essay version I've read of that revelatory type of experience type of essay, but I think there's a place for it, and I don't, I don't necessarily like the idea of, of advising students that they should never write about it because it, it can be a big piece of, of growing up um, and realizing what else is out there. But I, I agree we should think about how it could be done better. And I think... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, just to jump in quickly, I, you know, I just think what you said is key, right? It actually has to be revelatory. And I would argue that if it's truly revelatory, it usually in the, in the you know, ideally it sparks action. So not only do you have this amazing experience, but it spurs you maybe to do something differently as a result. If it's just sort of, wow, those people are really, really poor, and that you sort of are end up being left hanging. That's where the challenge to write something compelling comes in, because I think mm. if there's nothing to say, well, yeah, I had this experience and it was really compelling, but here I am living the same life and nothing really has changed. I don't know where's the where's the meat there. Right, I, I totally agree. And I, last time that we got together and discussed this very issue, um, Elise, you brought up the idea of your authentic self, of finding what your authentic self is going to be, whether it's community service or some other extracurricular activity, and really focusing on that aspect of who you are. And I think what you're both sort of saying is that, like, look, if this is what you'd like to write about, and this is the most important thing to you, then it should be shared. But I can also hear Beth sort of saying. Part of the problem with a report like this is it suggests to students that they need to have something of this variety if it's going to catch the attention of a college admission officer, that there is a particular type of essay that needs to be written. And that's sort of a segue to another sort of concern within the report, and, and it's something I want to talk about before we go to break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about what students can do. Um, the third overarching goal of this report is redefining achievement in ways that both level the playing field for economically diverse students and reduce excessive achievement pressure. And there are a lot of things underneath that umbrella. But the thing I want to focus on is the concept of overcoaching. So the report really says we want to discourage overcoaching. And yet the report also is suggesting what students should be doing in order to find meaningful kinds of engagement. We work at College Coach. Uh, we help students with their applications. Elise, when you see a critique of overcoaching in a report like this, what's your reaction to that, and, and how do you think about that in the context of your work with families? It's no, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that, well, maybe it is to people, but for those of us who live and breathe admissions, college admissions, 
it's understandable, I think, in some ways that people on the admission side don't always appreciate or understand or value what, what those of us who do the independent counseling do. And I can understand that because there are, not everyone out there is ethical. Not all college uh, advisors uh, help guide students in a way that doesn't write their essays for them, that, um, you know, we, we, we like to focus a lot on fit and finding, finding the right match. And it's, it's understandable, I think, that there is some skepticism about students who get that coaching because it assumes that they have money, they have the resources, they have all these advantages, and they're getting, you know, a, a college coach on top of that. Um, but at the same time, I think for the students out there, for whom they don't have the resources um, to within their high school, maybe it's because it's a huge high school and they don't, this, this counseling staff isn't as, as supportive as that student might need, or if the student has very, very high aspirations and the parents have no idea where to begin to help their child reach those goals, um, or if a student really just struggles in school and they need someone to hold their hand in a way and help them step-by-step step through the application, I think there's so much good work that a, an independent college counselor can do. So I, I think, yes, we, nobody wants to see a college counselor overcoach and write the essay and fill out the application for them and hit the submit button. You know, this is the student's process. This is their, this is part of their experience. It's, it's not, we've already been to college, right? This is their chance to do it. So I, I like the idea of, no, nobody wants overcoaching, but that doesn't mean that all college counselors should be avoided. Right, and Beth actually last week talked about this continuing reference to families gaming the system in a pejorative way uh, when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Beth, I think part of what you were sort of saying is, look, people need information. They need to know how to make these kinds of decisions. They need to know what colleges are looking for. Do you have any additional thoughts about uh, overcoaching before we go to our break? I mean, I think that um, one of the reasons we do this uh, radio show or this podcast is because we're hoping to give people information that we know that they need. I wish that they would, you know, when they say overcoaching, there's so many different ways to look at that. I see overcoaching as what Elise is saying. It could be that they are, um, you know, their essays are being written for them. That's such a bad idea and, and usually you can spot it a mile away. They're making decisions solely based on what they think a college wants instead of looking internally first and saying, what do I enjoy doing uh, and how can I do more of that versus, well, what do colleges want to see me do and then let me figure out how I can do that. That's the, the, the wholly wrong way of looking at it. So I'm not sure what the report really refers to when they say overcoaching, but what I would encourage families to, to think about is you start with the student first and you and and so long as you go with what is um, feels right for that student, assuming that right is not just kind of sitting around all day playing video games or you know, spending the summer just lounging around the pool. You know there are things that need to be done, um, but uh, avoiding situations where someone's saying to you, "Well, the only way you're going to get into this school is if you do this," because we can all say fairly definitively that you can almost never make a blanket statement like that. Um, mm -hmm. If there was a key and you did one thing and that automatically, or three things and automatically you got in, well, you wouldn't even need these shows. You wouldn't need college counselors. So, um, you know, the overcoaching thing rankles a little bit for the reasons Elise mentioned. 
Um, but I think the key message and takeaway for families is really um, make sure that the choices that are made are right for the student first, and then and then the college second. Perfect. And the, the student first idea is something that we'd like to focus on uh, coming back in the second se- segment. Um, Elise and Beth are going to stay with me. So uh, we're going to go to a break and we hope you join us after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, We're going to jump back into this conversation on the Turning the Tide report, we do. Um, if you're a longtime listener, you know that the best way to get to find us live is on the Voice America website at voiceamerica.com or our website at getintocollege.com. But you can also subscribe to and download the podcast on iTunes. And if you are somebody who subscribes and listens on iTunes and you have a moment this week, please leave a rating and review of the show for future listeners. Uh, it's really a great way for us to be sure that our advice is getting out there to a broader audience. And, and that's really helpful in dispelling a lot of these myths and misconceptions. So if you're hearing something from the person who lives five houses down and they're telling you you need to take both the SAT and ACT nine times, well, you can refer them to the College Coach Conversation and we can help to dispel that myth. Um, all right. We want to talk a little bit more about turning the tide, and and Beth, as we sort of signed off, was talking about this student-first philosophy, and I want to sort of talk about what this report might mean for students and families. Um, Beth, you and I were actually copied on an email from a family fairly recently, and the question was, you know, is it still important for us to keep taking AP classes? We're aiming at at certain schools, but it, it sounds like it might not be important to colleges anymore. I've had some uh, families that ask the same kind of thing, like, you know, is our thing shifting? What's your take about what this report means in terms of anything changing uh, with respect to academic questions? I, you know, I guess kind of my attitude is I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not, 
I don't think so. I think things are changing. Um, I don't, for the foreseeable future, I can, I think I can say pretty definitively, and I think Elise mentioned this last, in the last segment, that there's no way that places like Harvard and Stanford and the most selective places are relaxing their expectations or standards when it comes to what they want to see students taking and how well they want to see them doing. What I think the report is trying to say a little, or what, one of the things I wish that people would take away is the idea that, you know, we get asked all the time, well, how many APs do I need? But it's not really about that, right? At the most selective level, it's less that they want to see 12 APs and more that they'd like to see students in the most rigorous curriculum available at the high school and doing well in that curriculum. And that's going to mean different things at different high schools because some schools don't have any APs and some schools might only have two and other schools might have 20. Um, So as much as people could get away from the idea of toting up a number and somehow deciding, well, 13 APs is far better than 10, um, they'll be in a better place. And it goes back to that whole concept of students first. You know, what is right for this particular student is really the path to take. And you want to make sure that it's less about collecting accomplishments and more about accomplishments that make sense for students. Yeah, actually, um, our colleague Becky Leckling wrote a really great blog post, I think, just last week, and the title was, How Many AP Should I Take? And nowhere in the entry at all did she mention a number. It was more Mm -hmm. about sort of this idea of uh, how do you figure out what you can handle uh, academically, personally? Um, it's the same kind of thing that you would ask yourself of, you know, how many workouts should I be doing or what should I be eating? You know, it's, it's all a very sort of personal response. But Beth, you're sort of touching on an idea of um, context and what different kinds of high schools can pr- provide. And, you know, Elise, as I was reading through this, I felt like this segment that was talking about overloading on AP and IB courses, prioritizing quality, not quantity of academics, that felt to me like it was geared more towards high schools. Um, when some, when the parents and families are sort of thinking about choosing high schools, they often sort of weigh the number of AP classes that are available at each one or how rigorous that high school is. How do you advise families when they're choosing schools or choosing sort of educational options to think about the effect that that might have in college applications later on? Mm. It's funny because I was I was based um, on Long Island six years ago, looking to move and to Central Connecticut, and I was researching high schools for myself, even though my child was yet unborn. I was pregnant with my first, and I was wondering what high, what school district should we be living in. So um, I, I know intimately what this process is like, and I I was looking at the number of APs available, and I was, it wasn't the only factor, but. Um, I wanted to make sure that the high school that I would send my own kids to would have those academic options available. When I speak to other families about what to look for if they are in the position of switching from a public to a private or private to a public or a magnet program and they're wondering, you know, what is the best option, it's so much more than APs, so much more. Um, I often ask them to look into, uh, depending on the student's interests, athletic programs or music programs. Um, some schools have a focus on STEM and technology um, activities or, or academic interests. Other high schools uh, may have a dual language program, you know, where you're really immersed in the language or some may have much more diversity than others if that's important to you. I mean, there's, it's 
having a strong academic background, I think, is the, the biggest piece of what high school should be about. But not every student will be taking all 20 of those APs. Most won't be. So it's, mm-hmm. it should be much more than about those APs. It should be about you know the, the teachers who are there and the class sizes and the, the kids that your your child will be interacting with on a daily basis. Um, so there, it's a lot more than than just the academic component. I think. Yeah, it was Beth. I was giving you a pause there because I thought you might want to jump in there. But actually, um, <laughs> well, actually, I'm sorry. I do actually. I, I just um, I thought so. I, I could feel it. Came- from a meeting with a family, literally about 20 minutes ago, well, maybe a half an hour at this point, um, and the daughter had been accepted to three boarding schools, and their older daughter was at a boarding school, a very, um, probably one of the, what is widely considered one of the top boarding schools in the country, while she liked many aspects of the school, um, the competitiveness of it kind of drove her to do some things that ultimately um, kind of sabotaged her in the college process a little bit. And so when they were looking at places for their younger daughter, they sort of idea that, oh, well, it had the best, and instead were looking for more supportive environments, slightly smaller environments. Um, she's a fencer. They want, a, they want a place where fencing is a possibility. So they're choosing between three where she got accepted and only one of them has fencing, but the other one is a place where she could fence not far from the campus, so she continues. And so, to alleviate uh, the ability of APS or AP class and reputation, and one kid may not write, and if you don't necessarily send them to the same school all the time, if you have choices. Not everybody does. Yeah, and Beth, I think your your connection's a little bit uh, fuzzy, so you're kind of cutting in and out of there. But I think that the oh, fundamentally right. the idea you're sort of underscoring is that it, you, you same kind of idea as Elise, and and it's really looking at sort of qualitative offerings at at schools and and understanding what different choices are going to mean as they play out for you, sort of unintended consequences uh, associated with choosing your school. And, you know, one of the things I tell students when they're trying to decide on where they're going to go to high school is no college is going to look back at who you were in eighth grade and say, you could have gone to this high school, but you didn't. And we're going to hold that against you because this high school has more APs than that. That's just not a choice that's really uh, available uh, for colleges to evaluate. And it's, it's not particularly uh, important as they're looking at the relative merits of, of different students. Um, I'm interested in getting both of your sort of perspective on, on a couple of things from this academic section. Um, and I thought maybe we could sort of briefly just help some of our families to do some of the things that the uh, report recommends. Um, so, for example, they talk about reducing test pressure. Um, one of the things that I would recommend for reducing test pressure, for example, is not to worry so much about the writing section score on the ACT as a reason to retake the ACT. Are there pieces of advice that either of you would share that can just, in a nugget, help families to reduce the test pressure for their children around their house? Uh, this is in the report uh, as one of the examples. They, they do spell out, they say that colleges should tell students that taking the test, either the SAT or the ACT, more than twice is very unlikely to meaningfully improve student scores. And I think that's a great piece of advice there, that twice is enough. Um, I've worked with students who have taken it three, four, five times, 
and it becomes a problem. Not only does the score not go up very much, but when you are applying to a college that wants to see the entire history of your test testing, um, it doesn't always look so great if they happen to notice that you've taken it that many times and they wonder why is he spending that much time and money and when he could have been doing more interesting things. Um, so I, I love that recommendation. Two times is plenty. Definitely. Anything from you, Beth? And for me, I think planning ahead is key to reducing that pressure because if you have a plan, you know what you're going to do, you know when you're going to do it, that kind of automatically takes the stress out of, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to take these tests. I don't even know which one I'm going to take or when I'm going to do it. And I know I need to prep and sort of all of the angst around that can really build up. So if you have a plan, you know what you're going to do, you know when you're going to do it, that, that generally makes things a little less stressful. Perfect. I think that's great. Um, now, you know, it occurs to me as we spend all this time talking about the Turning the Tide report, if, it, if I were a, a listener, I would be looking up the Turning the Tide report and starting to read through it because I want to know, first of all, the context for all of this conversation, but also just get a sense of what the information is that's being shared out there. And so I have two questions for both of you. Um, the first is, uh, what are the takeaways from this report that actually will matter to students if there are any? Or what are some things that you would encourage families to look at and the second question is, what would you tell families to completely ignore from this report? Um, if there's a particular recommendation or if it's the, please don't say the whole thing, but, you know, what, what is some things that you would say, you know, that's actually not great advice or it's not coming from the right place? Um, let's, start with, uh, let's start with the good stuff from the report that you would hope families would take a look at and engage with. Elise, why don't you go first? I love the recommendation that students need to think more broadly about what constitutes a, quote, good college. Um, because in the blog that you and I were writing for getintocollege.com, you know, I, I mentioned that um, whenever a student gets a list from us, I always encourage them to not immediately uh, dismiss the college that they've never heard of because it could be a phenomenal choice. Um, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it couldn't offer you exceptional educational opportunities. So I think it's important for students to certainly aim high, and, and if they have a dream school that's well-known, that's great. That's fine. But there's more than just the, the top-tier colleges that U.S. News constantly writes about and the media constantly writes about. There's, there's great, great schools out there. Um, so I'd say that's my, my one plus. Did you want two pluses or just one? Look into um, I suppose, even though I know there was, I know how Beth feels a little bit about this issue, I do still like the idea of students considering whether or not community service could be a way for them to give back. And that, that is a huge piece of this report. Not everyone is uh, cut out for community service. Not everyone has a passion, is authentically interested in community service, and that's fine. But if you don't try it, you don't know. And I, I do like the idea of encouraging uh, young people to expose themselves, give yourself the option of seeing, is this a potential area for you to uh, get more in touch with your community? Great. That's great. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, Elise. And, and uh, I, I, would, I, I do have some thoughts about it, but I, I would completely agree with what you just said. There's no harm in trying it um, sure. and seeing what you think. Um, I think that, um, for me, one of the big things that I would love, first of all, I, I would like to see if colleges actually put their money where their mouth is and they 
there's actual change as a result of this report. I think that's yet to be determined, and we'll find that out in the next couple of years. Um, but one of the things that I did also like about the report, although I'm, I'm, it's not for everyone, was this idea of engaging more fully with people who are not like yourself. And mm-hmm. I would encourage people to think about that very broadly. That's not just race and ethnicity, right? It's not just going and hanging out with students who are African-American if you're white. It's not just going and... Um, I don't even know. It, it, it could be anything, really. It could be, it's just about engaging with, um, with people who maybe right now you feel like you have nothing in common with and seeing if you can't find some commonalities. So rather than going and doing four, like serving people at a soup kitchen, is there something else that you could do where you would be working together rather than always in the service of? And... Um, the report talks about that in an interesting way to me. I, I still sort of don't love the idea that colleges should somehow be determining how students interact with the world, but I don't think it's a bad suggestion. So I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Right. And, and yeah, so I, you know, I think that fundamentally this report contains a lot of really great information. It's, it's really important for students to think about these ideas irrespective of the context of college applications. You should be thinking about diversity irrespective of whether it's going to show up on an application. You should be engaging in service. You should be challenging yourself academically. All of those things are important. And I guess as the final word, what I would say is a cautionary uh, response for parents is don't take this report as indication that colleges are changing anything about what they do until that's something that the college admissions offices themselves come out and say that they're prioritizing, whether through a new essay or some new evaluation process. So, Elise and Beth, that's all the time we have. I thought for sure two segments would be enough. Maybe it's not, but uh, it's great to have you both. Um, and thank you, everyone, for, for listening along. Uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Elise. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. 
you can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We're just about two weeks from tax day. That's news to you. Um... Don't freak out. Uh, with so much happening around colleges and taxes this spring, we thought it would be useful to talk through the role of taxes, particularly student taxes in college finance. To do that, I'd like to welcome a former senior financial aid officer at Becker and Anna Maria Colleges, my colleague Lori Peltier. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Ian. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, you know, I have an idea about why we're talking about taxes today. It is the season, but why are we talking about taxes today as it relates to college finance and and student aid? Well, I thought it would be an important topic to bring up, not only because it's tax season and the deadline is creeping up, but because a lot of families get confused about the role that taxes might play for their student, for financial aid, and the financial aid applications. Um, oftentimes they'll ask us in a session, you know, I didn't file taxes for my student. Should I have? Will it impact their financial aid? And I want to preface everything today with I'm not a tax accountant and I never have been, but I have seen a lot of tax forms and, and answered a lot of questions for families around this. Um, I gotcha. think the biggest uh, impetus for this is that um, on the financial aid application, there's a question, will the student be filing a tax return, yes or no? What type of a tax return will they file? And then it asks specifically for some numbers from that tax return. So some families take that to mean that they have to. And uh, even if the student earned, say, you know, $2,000 bagging groceries at the local grocery store, do you really have to file a full-blown tax return for that? Um, and the, the IRS is pretty clear uh, for most students, again, there's always exceptions when it comes to taxes, but for most students, uh, they can earn up to $6,300 a year and still not file federal taxes. If they earn more than that from a job, they will be required to file tax returns. So 6300 is kind of the cap this year. If they earn less than that, they don't have to file. If they earn more than that, they are supposed to file. Gotcha. So it's one of those checkboxes on a form that like mm-hmm. I see it and it seems like an easy question and I I get super stressed about it because I have no idea what the, why it's being asked or what for. So mm-hmm. let's say I've got a student and um, that student has earned more than $6,300 and needs to file federal taxes. What does this mean about my ability to claim that student as, an ind- as a dependent um, if, if that student has filed taxes? Right. So as a fellow parent, you know that having your child as a dependent on your tax return gives you uh, a reduction in your taxes. It, it's one of, right. <laughs> one of the benefits yeah. of having children. So exactly. um, sometimes it's the only benefit of having children. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
So you do not lose your child as a dependent on the parent's tax return just because the student's filing a tax return on their own. That's a big misconception. A lot of people think that a student can't file their own taxes if you're claiming them as a dependent. And, and that's not necessarily true. If you meet all the qualifications to claim the student as a dependent, the student can still file their own tax return. Typically, the parents file a 1040 tax return, you know, several pages, mm-hmm. maybe even some schedules and add-on pages, whereas the student just files a 1040 easy, a one-page. They just claim their income and the taxes that they're paid. So the student's not getting their own deduction. They're not able to claim themselves, so the parents can continue to claim them, if that makes sense. So I guess if if you think of anything uh, around this, is don't worry about losing them as a dependent just because they're filing their own 1040 easy for the amount of money they earned as a student. Yeah, I, I miss that old 1040 easy. I remember um, in economics class in 12th grade, we had to fill one out. And I was like, this is easy. Doing taxes is fun. <laughs> Uh, and now with the 1040s, not so much. Um, so, so as far as the student taxes are concerned, um, do they have to report things on the on that on their tax forms as income, like work study, uh, scholarships, scholarship winnings, anything like that? Are those things that they need to claim? That's a good question. Um, the answer is yes and no. So, work study is. Uh, something that the student's going to receive a W-2 form from their college showing how much they earned in work-study in the previous calendar year, and there is a chance that taxes were taken out of that money. So they will have to, if they are going to file taxes, they will have to include their work-study money. However, work-study earnings are not going to hurt their chances for financial aid in the future. The financial aid application Hmm. has a way of backing out the work-study earnings. So if a student's been awarded work-study, earns $1,000 during the year, the next year when they apply for financial aid, that $1,000 of work-study earnings is not going to hurt their chances for financial aid in the future. It's, it's nice that they back that out. Scholarships, gotcha. however... Is, is that something to... that a student has to uh, fill out additional paperwork to report, or is it basically automatic with the forms? The, it's the automatic with the out. forms as long as they fill out the FAFSA form correctly. It will get cool. backed out. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is right. a and, and, and would miss it, but yes, it, it is asked on the FAFSA form. Gotcha. And I, sorry, I interrupted you as you were about to talk about scholarships as well. Right. It's rare that scholarships are taxable. In order for a scholarship to be taxable, it would have to be an amount above and beyond tuition and fees. So if the scholarship covers tuition and fees, it's not taxable. But if it covers more than that and starts to cover books, supplies, room and board, that portion of it is taxable. But it is taxed at the student's rate. It's going to show up on the student's tax return. The student tax rate is much lower than the parent's tax rate. So they may have to pay some taxes on it, but it's a lot less than if the parents reported it. Uh, and it is gotcha. fairly rare unless the student gets you know, what they call a full ride, you know, where they're getting enough scholarships to cover everything. Interesting. I mean, that, that had never occurred to me that you could get a full-ride scholarship and then also pay some taxes, taxes on, on that. Yeah. So, okay. So there's nothing, nothing comes from free, right? There's no free lunch. Um, right. So what are the things do I need to know about, about student taxes um, in a situation Well, I think like one this? of the biggest things is depending on how the student filled out their paperwork when they were hired, you, know, you fill out a, a W-4 form when you're hired, 
so that they can take taxes out of your pay. Mm-hmm. Um, if the student filed in such a way that no taxes were taken out, then there's no need for them to file a tax return. So if the student earned $2,000 at the grocery store, but the employer did not take any taxes out of their pay, then it doesn't really make sense for them to file a tax return because they're not going to get a refund. The real reason a student fills out their tax form is so that they can get a refund of the taxes that they paid throughout the year out of their paycheck. Um, so if they are due a refund, then it makes sense to, to fill one out. The other um, thing about student and taxes is that if they're applying for financial aid with the FAFSA form and they've done their taxes, they can do what's called IRS data retrieval. I know we've had other um, radio topics about this in the past. IRS data Mm -hmm. retrieval is a way to populate your FAFSA form with actual data from the IRS that they pull from your tax return. So something to think about, you know, if the student has filed taxes and now you're updating your FAFSA form, you can do it electronically through what's called IRS data retrieval, something that the FAFSA form will ask you about when you log back in to, to make any updates or corrections. So the data retrieval tool usually is used for parent tax information when they're filling out the FAFSA, but it can also retrieve data for student tax information as well. Correct, correct. Wow, that's great. Um, so uh, is there ever a time, I mean, it sounds like you're sort of saying like, you know, the, the refund is a big part of this, that if taxes are withheld, then you need to file a tax return. It actually is to your advantage as a student, mm-hmm. and it won't hurt you in this financial aid process in, in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, is there a time when a student should not file taxes? Well, if they're, if they're not obligated to file, so if their income has not hit the threshold of $6,300 of income, and their employer didn't take out any taxes out of their pay, or maybe they took out, let's say, $50. It may not be worthwhile to file taxes because whether you do them on paper or you do them electronically with, like, TurboTax or you hire a tax accountant to file your taxes for you, it usually costs some money and a time mm-hmm. and hassle component to get it done. So you have to kind of weigh, well, is my $50 refund worth filing you know, with my accountant who's going to charge me $75 an hour to fill out the forms. Or, gotcha. you know, just the hassle of putting all the paperwork together and submitting it on time. So you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons. Um, most students, because their income is so low, they do qualify for free tax filings. A lot of families just bring them to their tax accountant when they go um, and have the tax accountant do the whole family at once. Um, but it, it really kind of depends on how much money you're getting back and whether they exceeded the threshold and they can get away with skipping the tax return that year. Gotcha. And and the 1040 easy is, you know, is called the easy for a reason. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty it's pretty simple for a student to be able I think to just get that form and and fill out the necessary information if you have records for your income. Right. Um now, Lori, I think, you know, at the heart of of a lot of these questions um is certainly aid and how aid might be affected. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, my understanding is that the big driver of federal financial aid is going to be parent income. Um, What about sort of student earnings? You know, I know we're talking a little bit about taxes, but is there Mm -hmm. a reason to not earn as much as your earning power would allow you as a student because of taxes? Or is there a point at which, you know, it's, it's, it, the rate that you're paying that goes into financial aid is going to be affecting, um, you know, the, the overall value of your financial aid package because of, of the amount of right. income you have as a student? That's an excellent question. Um, so right now, for this year, the income cutoff for a student, it's very 
similar to the income cutoff or threshold for filing for taxes, it's about $6,400. So if a student earns less than $6,400, the student income has no impact on their financial aid. Okay. If the student earns more than 6400 in the year that they're reporting for their FAFSA form, any income above the 6400 is considered eligible for college at 50%. So as a round number, let's say the student earned $10,000. They worked really hard over the summer, worked a lot of hours, and during the school year, and they earned $10,000 uh, throughout the year. The first mm-hmm. 6400 would be exempt. The remaining 4,600 or whatever, 5,600 would be, um, you can tell how good I am at math, never mind. 3,600. Right, 3,600 would be assessed at 50%. So it could yeah. have about a, you know, almost a $2,000 impact on their financial aid eligibility. I understand. But, but they do have, still have that income. And so it's a question of, you know, right. the amount of that you're doing, you're, mm-hmm. you're getting essentially 50 cents per dollar after $6,400 because exactly. you're going to have to pay that back into, into your college tuition. And so, I, you know, that's, that's a good question is, you know, if I would do this job for $10 mm-hmm. an hour, would I do it for five in terms of right. money in my pocket? Um, right. That's and one great. one thing, that's um, you know, and that can help hurt a student, like if they do a paid internship. Mm-hmm. You know, great, they're, they're getting experience, but they're also sometimes making a lot of money. Um, so it's, it's a weird um, designation, but internships do count towards the income that the student reports on their financial aid application, so it can impact their future financial aid offering, but a mm-hmm. co-op does not. So co-op earnings, um, which a lot of schools are offering that now as hands-on experience as part of their degree program, um, and they can make quite a bit of money, does not affect their financial aid in the future. Great. I, that's, that's terrific. Thanks so much, Lori, for stopping by and helping to make sense of this tax uh, information. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's, that's it for today's show. I want to thank Lori again and, and Beth and Elise for returning this week to complete our conversation on Turning the Tide. Um, next week, Sally Ganga will take over hosting duties for the show. We'll have conversations about college tours and regional tuition reciprocity agreements. Try and say that five times fast. Uh, we'll also be welcoming another student perspective to the show. So it's a really great resource if you're trying to decide where you want to go to college next year. Um, we're always looking for your ideas to help us shape future segments. To provide your feedback, please visit Get Into college.com forward slash survey. We look forward to bringing you advice that is totally relevant for you. And with that, we are out like a lamb. Keep your head on straight tomorrow, folks. It's a good day not to believe everything you read. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 